The podcast is turning one year old today, and we're celebrating by talking about, well, history. It's a special anniversary show today on Footnoting History. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Nathan, and welcome to Footnoting History. Today is a very special day for us here at the podcast because it's our one-year anniversary as a show. Yay! I know, I can hardly believe it myself. Uh, Instead of a normal show where we wax profound on an esoteric topic of history we find interesting, we thought we'd take this opportunity to talk about our own personal histories a bit. Almost all of our podcasting team are professional historians of one kind or another, and we all at least have graduate degrees in history. Um, That's actually how we know one another. Most of us went to grad school together uh, or met during our graduate studies. But how do you get to be a professional historian? And what were the factors in our lives that steered or drew us to the professional study of history? For this episode, I hopped on Skype with four of our podcasters, Lucy, Nicole, Christine, and Liz, and asked them to share a little bit about their own stories. Before we dive in, though, I just want to take a moment and say thank you to all of our listeners and subscribers on behalf of everyone here at Footnoting History. We are enormously thankful for your support, your ratings on iTunes, your comments on Facebook and on our website, but most of all, just for spending a few minutes of your week with us. We have a lot of great episodes and some new series planned for the upcoming year, and we're very excited to be bringing them to you. So once again, thank you. Hey, Lucy. Hey, Nathan. How are you doing today? I am well, thank you. Okay, so as you know, uh, for our anniversary show, I'm going around and asking everyone sort of uh, why you're a historian or how you became a historian. Uh, So, why are you a historian? First of all, it's nice to be asked that question in a context where it's not me, you know, burning too much midnight oil and asking myself, why am I a historian? Or, you know, one of my aunts who's really worried about my job prospects or similarly. Um, but <laughs> aside from these occasional moments of... Like, why on earth would you would you ever become a historian? There's no money in it. Yes. But what are you going to do? Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, I... Well, I do love it. But how does one... It's a good question to ask. How does one figure out that one really, really, really enjoys... Um, thinking about old stuff and reading old documents. Um, I was always, from a a disconcertingly young age, (laughs) very interested by the the difference of history, I suppose would be the best way to put it, about unfamiliar things, Mm -hmm. about um, just things totally outside our experience, whether this was the English longbow or hoop skirts or art deco hotels or you know whatever comes across the the plate of a seven-year-old raised on you know old children's books and old hollywood movies (laughs) it's it's true um and i got hooked i suppose really starting to read medieval texts when i was in junior high or something 
Um, feel free to laugh. Um, <laughs> but it, they were so fascinating to me, partially because of the the sense of mystery and the sense of of difference. When you say medieval text, what do you mean? Are you talking about Arthurian stories or? Partially, yes. So I got, um, you know, I wasn't, you know, seeking out charters. I think if I'd found charters first, you know, I might have turned away. <laughs> so many, so many legal texts. No, um, but I found Le Mort d'Arthur, mm-hmm. um, which is a big uh, sort of 15th century English uh, collection of Arthurian. Right tales. by Thomas Mallory. Yes, um, still a favorite of mine. And then when I was 15, I discovered the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> oh. Yeah, which is um, unexpected. I didn't expect so many filthy stories in the Canterbury Tales. You know, I'd had an illustrated Chanticleer when I was much younger. Um, mm-hmm. But also also fascinating to, to read stories in so many different uh, of so many different types there from the different the men and women from different classes social backgrounds religious persons lay persons and i uh i got hooked on the process of um well the very 19th century process of trying to figure out what happened and then by the time i figured out that i couldn't always figure out what happened whether this was with king arthur or with joan of arc who was another high school passion of mine, I was really hooked on the process of looking at things for their own sake and trying to figure out, piece things together, I suppose. I I also got uh, very fortunate, I think, in a way, in that I I very early had the confidence-boosting experience of, you know, nerding out at people and having them seem really interested. I mean, I'm sure part of it was the novelty value of having a 14-year-old suddenly pipe up and, and uh, you know, talk about Joan of Arc at the dinner table. But, um, you know, of, of being really excited about something and then seeing other people get excited about it. And so, you know, being able to say, oh, well, that is really exciting. And look, you know, I can go and do this stuff, which I find interesting. And then I can communicate it to other people in a way which they find interesting. So did you start college as a history major? Oh, I did. Yes, absolutely. Well, um, I got to actually make up my own major. Um, but yeah, I went through the whole college application process, like convinced that I wanted to get my PhD in medieval history. From day one. Wow. I, I mean, I entered I entered college knowing that I wanted my PhD um, and without ever having taken a college course, knowing that I wanted to teach college. I, I wanted to teach college because I knew that I wanted to teach. I had done um, some tutoring in high school and I absolutely loved it, but it was always math tutoring. Uh, no one ever needed tutoring in any other subject. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it always seems like people needed math tutoring. And um, I entered it as an English major. And I actually had someone remark to me whenever whenever they asked, oh, well, have you declared a major yet? Like whenever I had a, whenever I applied. And I said English. And they said, well, I thought, I thought for sure you would have gone for history. And I had always intended to do history as a minor. But whenever I got in and figured out that I could still graduate in four years... And there were enough classes that that overlapped between the two that I could actually declare a second major. So I declared the second major in history. Um, And then whenever it came time for grad school, I had to decide, well, which one am I going to do, history or English? And uh, I went with history. So excellent. Even though, as you've said, you were very interested in the Middle Ages from from uh, a young age or youngish age, and you entered your uh, undergraduate studies knowing that this is what you wanted to study. Yes. Have you ever been tempted by another period or another topic? 
which of us is not Nathan? Which of us has not heard the siren call <laughs> of another another period or topic? Oh, so many options. I think um, another early literary interest of mine um, focused very much on the you know, good old nineteenth century adventure literature of Robert Louis Stevenson um, uh-huh. and later of Charles Dickens, Sir Walter Scott. Um, I have loved, 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 loved um, Sherlock Holmes from also a very young age. So doing something about Victorian literary and social history um, would be attractive to me. I actually did a sort of uh, secondary field on that in my general exams because I, I find those intersections of you know what people think about and feel about and how they feel that should interact with society or how they, they just express themselves through their artistic production. I find that interesting. Mm-hmm. It often, of course, usually, I think, happens in much more subtle ways than Charles Dickens, um, bless his heart, uh, saying, you know, here is an allegory I have for you. <laughs> Do you like it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love Dickens there. Anyway, um, or I have a real soft spot for modernist anxiety. I just can go and look at German expressionist paintings all day. <laughs> I mean, that takes that takes that takes a special kind of love. I mean, I like German expressionism uh, well, probably a little bit more than the next guy. And I love teaching German expressionism. Mm. Um, interwar art is one of my favorite. Well, it sort of, sort of starts around the beginning of World War One. There is some German expressionism that's that's pre World War One, but but German expressionism as a as a component of of uh, World War One and, and interwar art, I really love teaching, particularly film. Uh, I loved I love teaching German expressionist film. Ah, I've never had a chance to do it yet. I'm just itching though. You know, I just <laughs> need to get <laughs> the opportunity to tell, convince students that uh, that Conrad Veidt is amazing. Well, most of the time, whenever whenever I introduce him to like uh, Fritz Lang, mm-hmm. um, which I, I I sort of craft a I have an assignment that I do where uh, they have to choose from, I think three of the, the like four different films and three of them are fritz long films so like m metropolis and then also on that list is like the cabinet of dr caligari and so then they have to talk about um german expressionism and sort of how how uh, it manifests interwar sort of anxieties and the effect of the war on german culture and blah 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 no but but uh, i can definitely see you some doing something with the victorians and and sort of Victorian Victorian culture and, and modernist anxiety, which those sort of bleed into one another. I mean, the reason you have the modern the you know the modernist anxiety is because, you know, World War One destroyed the Victorians. <laughs> well it destroyed the Edwardians, but you know I don't yeah, uh, yes, but there is so much um overflow there, I think. I mean it's it's very easy to see that as a Sessura and certainly um was experienced by, you know, a generation as a huge break, but, and I'm sure we'll hear um, a lot of people, not just ourselves, haha, talking about this in the coming centenary year, but you know, I'm also interested, uh, inevitably, in, in picking apart the anxieties, aspirations, you know, beliefs that sort of set up the, the um, powder keg mm-hmm. that eventually uh, turned into World War One. Yeah, I think parking in the fantasy act and looking at everyone's anxieties would be fascinating. Well, thank you for talking to me, Lucy. Thank you, Nathan. Always a pleasure.
Okay, so Nicole, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm quite well. So first of all, maybe start off uh, telling me a little bit about what you study and why you became a historian or why you're a historian. Sure. I study late antique and early medieval Italy. So that's the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries. And I decided to become a historian basically because I was always interested in what people in the past were doing. I read a lot of historical fiction when I was young and uh, was just very interested in talking about and thinking about why people do strange things often that they do why people do would do weird sort of things like what kind of what kind of historical fiction did you read <laughs> uh, all sorts actually um weirdly enough i was interested a lot in pioneer stuff and uh like laura ingalls wilder type yeah, things or she's really little yeah and uh i really liked glory so it wasn't limited to reading it was also watching um <laughs> just stuff, all sorts of strange things but uh yeah, yeah. And uh, I only got into the Middle Ages when I was in college. Yeah. How did you? Oh, OK. So how do you go from from reading pioneer literature well, well, or like Laura Ingalls Wilder and watching Glory? How do you go from how do you go from that to becoming a medievalist? How did that happen? Uh, college courses, basically. I when I went into college, yeah, I I just took a few. I took a medieval class and it was interesting. And I decided to kind of follow that. Um when I went to college, I wasn't a history major at first. I was doing psychology. And then I was going to decide whether I wanted to do history or English because I like history and I like to read and write. Yeah, I had to make the same decision. Yeah, so I took a whole bunch of courses and the medieval history course that I took was really interesting and I just decided to pursue that further. Yeah, that that's sort of what happened to me as well. Um, I started off college as an English major um, yeah. wanting to do British literature. And I added the history major later, and I had a fantastic medieval survey course, um, which kicked my butt because it, it is, to this day, maybe one of the hardest courses I've ever taken. And it was straight lecture, but I have never taken such a hard multiple-choice test in my life. Um, I studied six hours for that midterm. That was the midterm, and I got... A C curved up to a low B on that midterm. Wow. That had never happened to me before. And I was taking this class. I think I took this class as a sophomore. And uh, no, it was insane. And I, I, there was just something I knew at that point. I, I was like, I have to be a medievalist. <laughs> because I'm a, I'm a masochist. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so how did you go from then, okay, I want to be a medievalist, to how did you get into lit antiquity um, and, and, and the Lombards, and which I know you study, and... Um, in Byzantine Ravenna and all of that, which you did a podcast on earlier this year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in a somewhat similar manner, actually, when I was doing my master's. Uh, so I, in my undergrad, I did my honors thesis on, on King John and on the interdict in England. So that's mm -hmm. late medieval. Uh, but I wasn't, I, I did like the topic. I like England, but I wasn't really wedded to it. Mm -hmm. And uh it was in my first year of grad school that when I really started taking classes on early, on the early Middle Ages, I hadn't in, um, in undergrad for the most part, and there was just something really interesting about it and uh, as this sort of period on the margins of the Middle Ages, uh, something that I just didn't know anything about at all that seems really, really different. So that's how I got into the early Middle Ages in general. Um, for Ravenna and, and late antiquity, 
I was, I took a numismatics course at Princeton with Alan Stahl, and that really got me interested in Ravenna. Really? I, yeah, you no. know, I, whenever I go to museums and stuff, and I, and I see the coins, which um, for anyone who's listening doesn't know what numismatics is, that's the study of the study of coins. Um, I, I, I just, I always find that, I hate to say this, I always find it boring. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people do. (laughs) I mean, I I hate to pass judgment like that, but... Well, there's... uh, The thing is, with these coins, uh, there are a lot of images on coins, and the way that images are used on coins is very interesting Mm -hmm. to me. Um, So that's... And that's actually what I was looking at with these coins. Sure. I will say that I've read some very boring numismatic studies. Oh, uh, yes, so have I. Because... You know, there is definitely a range of things that people talk about when they talk about coins. But for me, <laughs> the interesting aspects are are, that, are these images and how they change and how rulers are trying to portray themselves. So, so the images, it's sort of an art history aspect. Yeah, uh, art history, material culture. Um, I also studied archaeology as an undergrad. And so I'm very interested in material culture in general. Right, right. Well, okay, so you study the early middle ages and as you said that that was a little bit different from um what you wrote your uh undergrad thesis on and that was even more different from the kinds of things that you were maybe interested in when you were younger so uh the other question that i'm asking everyone is if you did not study late antique early medieval italy is there a different period or geography or topic that you would study or would you not be in academia altogether? Would you be doing something completely different? Yeah, uh, I am infinitely curious, and so <laughs> I have a few answers to this. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm very interested in in World War One and the post World War One period, mm-hmm. the art, um, how people reacted to the war. I actually got interested in it in a in a totally different course I took in grad school on hysteria. Oh um, yeah, no, I know the course you're talking about. Yeah. So there's that, uh, and I, I'm really interested in that. And I, when I teach modern history, I, I really like doing that. But I'm also interested in uh, well, in medieval Japan. Oh yeah. Uh, and Japan in general, um, Japan to 1600 essentially, which I studied. I got a chance to study a little bit at Maryland as well. But I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the ancient Near East. Uh, there are a lot of different time periods that I would probably study. All right. Well, thank you for talking with me, Nicole. No problem, Nathan. Hey, Christine. Hey, Nathan. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Um, I'm good. So, Christine, why are you interested in history? But how do you explain how you're interested in something that you came out of the womb doing? You you issued forth from your mother's womb reading Latin? <laughs> I mean, what, what, well, why did you decide to do a master's degree in history, and why did you decide to do one in medieval history? The reason I went to school for history and medieval history specifically was because... I like telling stories. I like hearing stories. I like biographies. Most people 
like to view history in a different way than a narrative. They don't think a narrative is the way things have to be. Well, not, not always. I, like I mean, there is there is a certain branch of, of or certain way of doing history, which is very narratively yes. sort of yes, driven. There is. I like history from above. I like looking at the lords, the ladies, the lives. I like sitting there and figuring out who married who, why they married them. And I like telling the story behind them. I had a choice of what form of history I wanted to go for. And at the time when I was finishing my bachelor's, I had just read Here Be Dragons by Sharon K. Penman, which talked about um, medieval whales and the conflict with King John. And I really liked medieval history. And next thing I knew, that's what I was going for. And I was torn between doing that and doing Napoleonic France. So if you had you if you had your choice of, of another period, like if you had to go back and redo a master's in history, what other period would you choose? Would it be Napoleonic Europe? Oh, absolutely. I mean, given I that we've done you. given that we've done a podcast series on Napoleonic Europe and well, the French Revolution and, and Napoleon. Look, let's be honest. We all know that the Bonapartes are my all-time favorite family. Yeah, I love this is, them. This is true. You do love them in an inordinate amount. I love everything about them. And I love the family more than I love Napoleon himself. He's just the catalyst for me to be able to know about the family. I did a series of tweets the other day that was um, connecting Hortense Bonaparte with um, Princess Charlotte of Wales because Charlotte's best friend married Hortense's ex-lover. And... One of our followers, hello, I'm sure you'll know who you are if this makes it to the cut, um, was like, it always comes back to the Bonapartes. And I was like, yes, when I'm doing the tweets, it's always going to come back to the Bonapartes. <laughs> if you weren't doing medieval Europe and you weren't doing the Bonapartes, what else would you, is there anything else that you would have done? I would have probably done 19th century or earlier Irish history. Really? If I have to write, yes. Why that? Well, I, I was a disciple of Chris McGinn, who actually did Tudor era history for Ireland when I was going to school, and I did every semester of class that I could possibly take with him because I thought he was brilliant. I still think he's brilliant, but it's been a long time, and um, that was something that I really loved. I loved everything up to and including 1916, mm -hmm. the Easter Rising. The Easter Rising. Mm -hmm. I was really big on that. And so if I, if I had to rank it, because obviously we have to put medieval England at the top because that's what I did the degree in. So it would be medieval England, Napoleonic France, although in the real world, it's Napoleonic France, then medieval England. Then after that would be Irish history, followed by medieval Wales, and then colonial United States, probably, with Australian history actually coming up in it. Because I actually didn't know anything about Australian history other than the penal colony things that everybody hears about until we started doing the podcast and I was on Twitter and I noticed how many of our followers were from Australia and I appreciate that. So I started looking into Australian history thinking that we should cover it at some point and then I discovered all sorts of fun things. I went, why has nobody taught me this before? So that's a new interest, but it's there. Which is which is how we got the podcast on uh, the duo, the podcast you did with Liz on uh, Edward Gibbon Wakefield. Yes, that was because, well, even though he didn't actually go to Australia, it was because I wanted to do something about Australia that was not a penal colony. So I started looking up how colonies other than those were created, and then his name came up, and then I read his story, and I thought, seriously, like, this guy was a real thing? Come on. 
And that's where why we picked that because he hits a lot of places. He comes from England. He goes to Canada. He wants to colonize Australia and he ends up in New Zealand. So you hit like all these great places and this guy's one really bizarre life story. But I mean, there are other Australian topics like that I would hope to go into at some point, including the Razor Gangs, the early 1900s, things like that. So I like looking at what, why a person was in a place and what it's the social aspects really more than it is anything else you know i prefer individual life stories not for the drama of it but more for the seeing people how how their minds worked and the situations that they ended up in and the choices that they made or that were made for them and then how they handled them it's like a giant character study that kind of history is definitely very appealing. It's, it's why I like um, looking at historical dramas and films and plays and sitting there and saying most of the changes that they made from the history are not necessary because the history is dramatic enough on its own. Yeah. There we go. All right. Well, Christine, thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome, Nathan. It was a pleasure. game of cars my friend and there's an ace in every hand but you got to be careful hi liz hi nathan how are you doing today i'm all right how are you i'm hanging in there i'm hanging in there i'm not nearly as cold yeah. as you are <laughs> no no hey we finally had snow i know crazy it's crazy yeah yeah so as you know uh i'm asking everyone how they became a historian um yes. how did you well how did you become a historian and how did you become a medieval historian well, two different things. Uh, medieval history, or just the Middle Ages, was always very, which is something big in our house. I have four older brothers. Mm -hmm. They were very into Monty Python. I have parents who thought it was really cool to have tapestries of, say, the unicorn um, that is now at the cloisters on the wall. Right. My mother had a master's in medieval French literature. Basically, really? yeah, the Middle Ages has just always been in my life. And then um, history... I usually point to two books I read as a child. Um, one is Witch Week by Diana Wynne-Jones. Run out now. It's available on Amazon, people. So actually, don't run out. Go to your computer, <laughs> to your computer which you're right now. probably sitting at. <laughs> so <laughs> Google. No, um, go to Amazon.com and buy your children <laughs> Witch Week by Diana Wynne-Jones, which is a story about alternate dimensions based on Guy Fawkes. Like, what if Guy Fawkes had succeeded? Yes. It's wonderful. So that kind of got into me. So I guess the idea of alternate dimensions where historical actions didn't happen got to me. And then I read that when I was 11. And a few years after that, uh, as you might have guessed from my Rule of Ingleside podcast, people, um, I read that book. And I was really taken with how the events unfolded in what seemed as real time. And there was this whole thing for chapters. The book went into the miracle of the Marne and would the line hold and would Paris fall all during World War I. And then when I got to high school and I read the description of my textbook, it was one sentence that said that the miracle of the Marne was caused by taxi cabs rushing to the defense. And that was it. And I was like, it was chapters in this book. How can it be one line in a textbook? And so I think between the two of those things, I got into history. So did you enter yeah, college as a history major? Yes. And never deviated, never changed? 
No, the closest you could say is that I added um, a lit minor when I was at Oxford. That would, but then I studied Chaucer and I studied 19th century literature, which again, for anybody who's heard my podcast, not really shocking. <laughs> no, no, it's at not all. terribly surprising. <laughs> no, let's say that I've been true to form for the past 15 to 20 years, basically. <laughs> so, whenever you entered uh, college as a history major, did you do it with the intention of, of teaching history? Yeah. In high school, I had considered, um, as one always does, becoming a lawyer and then, of course, a Supreme Court justice. Well, you know. Because, (laughs) obvious leap. (laughs) But then at some point I realized I didn't really want to be a lawyer and I thought, well, maybe I'd like to be a history professor who wore a lot of tweeds. Did you consider lawyer because your dad's a lawyer? Um, Partially because my dad is a lawyer and... Yeah, that's probably what it is. Ever since eight, it was kind of always my fallback career. <laughs> At the age of eight, I was either going to be a farmer or a lawyer. Uh, I wanted to run a, yeah. whenever I was eight, I wanted to, um, I mean, I'm from a, a small town of less than 2,000 people in rural Arkansas. Mm. And right. uh, for some reason, though, our town, which was the county seat, has or had at one point in its history a movie theater on the town square, mm. but it had fallen into disuse. Um, it, it had not been a functioning movie theater since before I was born. Mm-hmm. And I, we passed it, you know, every time you go through the middle of town, and I always thought about reopening it. So right. I wanted to be like a movie theater owner, which is funny because I really love movies. Like movies are one of my mm-hmm. hobbies. Hence the the film history series that Esther and I are going to be exactly. doing later this year. Are we all just trying to recapture our dreams of being eight years old? I guess kind of. Well, here? the other thing I was thinking about doing was being a chemist. I knew uh, nothing about chemistry at the age of... Well, right. I, I decided that at like 10 because I liked mixing stuff together and seeing what would happen. So right. I would take like random... And it was probably actually kind of dangerous. I would take like random household substances <laughs> and mix them together to see what would happen. I discovered that if you took uh, fingernail polish mm-hmm. and you dropped it in like a shallow thing of water, eventually the uh, acetate or whatever it is would solidify into a plastic film on on the top of the water. So oh. I would I would like hide oh. this these like bowls of water all around the house and and drop fingernail polish into them. And it would make like these little discs of plastic film. Um, which is essentially, now I mean, that's I what it does. Do that. that's, that's what it does on your fingernails. But well, right. it doesn't really prove anything. But I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I made but, plastic film. Well, that's it. It's kind of a cool experiment. Yeah, you know, to, yeah. I have two little girls, so I can definitely see saying, "Hey, let's put some, drop some nail polish in a bowl and see what happens, girls." <laughs> yeah, and they'd be so excited. Well, not the younger one; she would probably try to eat it. Well, but no. the older one would be really excited. <laughs> no, but uh, the other thing that I would do is. Um, Whenever I was like 10 years old, um, Mm -hmm. inordinate amounts of time in the bath, mixing shampoos together to create this ultra mega shampoo. So I wanted to be a chemist because that's what I thought chemists did at the age of 10. Uh, right. I wanted I wanted to be a farmer, but I mean, I also came from a small town, but a small town an hour north of New York City, and there was no farmland in my town. But I had this great dream that I was going to go to Texas A&M, and I was going to be a farmer. (laughs) But by farmer, I really meant rancher because I liked cattle, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to actually ever have to sell them for the meat. Oh, because, you know, I really that's cattle. too traumatic. <laughs> yeah. So I always said I'd be a farmer, but with ranch, but I wouldn't actually ever get rid of the... I don't know how I thought that this would all work. Apparently, I thought I was going to be independently wealthy <laughs> and I was going to have a hobby farm <laughs> after going to Texas A&M, as one does. 
but that was that was my career goal. And of course, if that didn't work out, lawyer. Well, at least you knew where to go. At least you knew to go to Texas A&M because they do have a strong agri-science program. No, I know. And I kind of wonder to this day how Texas A&M showed up on my radar of this little girl from New York. Like, You probably saw a football game or something from. and associated Texas with cattle. and. I mean, maybe. I have no idea. I mean, I have to say neither of my parents tried to dissuade me. I just eventually realized that probably I don't like getting up early. Which is a big oh. part of farming. <laughs> and I didn't want to ever actually have to get rid of the cattle right. if we had a ranch. Well, how did you go from from being a farmer to a medieval historian? Like, why? Okay, so you're, you go into college, you enter into college right. uh, as a mm-hmm. history major. What made you become a medieval, medieval European historian? You know, um, I mostly blame, again, my family for them really being into the Middle Ages. But I did have a couple of other areas. I even, I ended up writing my senior thesis on the princes in the tower and Richard III and Henry VII. But I also tried, but wasn't able to, but I wanted to take an independent study to, on the transcendentalists of the 19th century America. Mm-hmm. Emerson Thoreau. So, right. And um, Hawthorne, because I love him. Um, but all of them. And then even when applying for graduate school for different programs, I went back and forth. Should I do medieval England or should I do Jewish history? I don't know if I've ever fully settled, and that's probably why I like to do the podcast, because as much as I like medieval history, I feel like there are a lot of areas I didn't get to explore as much as I wanted, because at some point you have to choose a topic. Right. right. You have to choose an area. You have to limit yourself. And so I think that's that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast, because there's a dearth of jobs in the academic industry, right. industry, if you will, uh, for teaching. Well, for increasingly, increasingly teaching. industry, but yes. Yes, um, exactly, which is actually what I would consider the problem, or one of the problems, one of many problems. It's a complicated issue. And I thought, well, if I don't get to teach because I can't get a position, so I decided I would create my own podcast, and we would, of course, become world famous and either land a full-time gig on NPR or the BBC. (laughs) And if the BBC, I would eventually um, be one of the TV historians in England on the BBC wearing riding pants. Walking through it's a field and a talking jacket. about... <laughs> yes. And someone would style my hair into perfect curls. <laughs> and I'd have a few English Spaniels running around my feet. Uh-huh. I mean, not quite there yet, but I still believe in all of us. We're doing it. <laughs> well... Bringing it home. Maybe maybe we'll get there someday. Okay, so so you're obviously interested in other periods of, of history. Right. Um, yes. Is there... If you had to go back and do it all over again, and you couldn't choose what you study, which is late... late medieval English ecclesiastical institutions, what else would you study? Part of me says, again, possibly 19th century America. Part of me says I would like to have done a different take, and this is just because I find it enjoyable, but I'm not quite sure. But I like, I do, I like looking at books and literature and trying to pull out historical evidence from them, which I think is different than how people who study for English, like have doctorates in English Mm -hmm. or, or in literature, look at them. Another good thing is that having taught, I've been adjuncting now, uh, what, since like 07, like teaching Mm -hmm. different courses, and I've taught world history, I've taught American history, both pre- and post-Civil War, I've taught modern European, medieval history, and I have to say that teaching has kind of allowed me to satisfy, but also learn about a lot of different areas, so I can't even, because I've learned so much, I don't even know what I would actually focus on anymore, because I've gone into detail in so many different areas just to teach the subjects i don't know there i don't know you've stumped me (laughs) 
even though I gave you this question months ago. <laughs> it seemed to make lots of sense in my head. I obviously knew I had an answer. Now I'm like, I don't know. What would I study? Puppies. Lots of puppies. Maybe I'd be a lawyer. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would have gone to law school right after college and finished that one up. Well, yeah. So much. So many things we should have done right after college. <laughs> That would have made more sense. All right. Well, thanks for talking with me, Liz. Well, thank you, Nathan. And as always, this has been Footnoting History. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to all of our episodes, as well as information about upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.